You're listening to an audio message from Harvest Bible Chapel in Granger, Indiana. For more information, visit our website at harvestgranger.org. Let me ask you to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. We have finally made it to another chapter of Ephesians. And uh, in conjunction with that, we are going to start a brand new series. And the name of the series is called Breath Taken. And if I do my job correctly in the next few weeks, and you do your job correctly in the next few weeks, at moments throughout the service, we should actually hear some audible gasps as your breath is taken away by the reality of what we're about to read. Our theme for the whole year is deeper, and so what we're gonna see in these next two chapters of the book of Ephesians is a deeper awe, okay? So we might need a little practice in being breathtaking a little bit here. Let me, let me just try it out here, and let's see how this works. If I do my job correctly, you do jo- your job correctly, what I'm about to say should result in an audible gasp. The Cubs won the World Series. Okay, all right. Let's try that again. Our next president will be Donald Trump. No, this is not working. Last night we had a little dinner party at my house, and uh, and we we played a little game, and one of the games was just to get to know each other, and somebody had a question, and and I got the question, what is your favorite movie? One of my favorite movies is Back to the Future 2. Do you remember this movie? Okay. Uh, It's set in 1985, and you remember Marty McFly gets in the DeLorean, and he goes 30 years into the future, which would be the year 2015. And uh, there were two things that he discovered when he got to the year 2015. The Cubs had won the World Series, and Biff had become president. I'm just saying, okay? I, I don't know what that means. It was a good movie, all right? It was a good movie. Back to the sermon. We're looking for a deeper awe. Do you remember the first time you rode a roller coaster? You remember going over that first hill and having your breath taken away? You see, some things uh, take your breath away that are absolutely awesome, like the thrill of going over the hill of a roller coaster. Um, How many of you remember, uh, ladies, let me just try this out on the ladies, how many of you remember when your husband proposed Posed and he pulled that ring out and he got down on the knee and you did what? <sighs> it took your breath away, didn't it? That was a breathtaking moment. Or some of you remember the excitement of finding out uh, that you were going to have a baby or your first grandchild. It was a breathtaking moment. Um, I remember a moment where Andrea and I were flying out uh, to Seattle, Washington to do one of our uh, family life weekend to, rem- to remember marriage conferences. And, and uh, we'd never been out to Seattle and it was a long flight out there and the flights got delayed and the weather was bad and we got in really late and we had a bad cab ride. We just got to the hotel exhausted and just kind of flopped into bed. The next morning we woke up and we opened the blinds to the window and the sun was beaming in and off in the distance you could see Mount Hood. It was actually Portland, Oregon. Now that I think about it, is it Mount Hood there, and uh, and it, it was a breathtaking moment. And we just oh, the beauty of that moment was was absolutely breathtaking. Some things are breathtaking that are awesome. Other things are breathtaking that are awful. Remember seeing those planes fly into the World Trade Center on 9-11. It was a breathtaking moment. Or some of you can remember when your children were little and walking across the floor late at night in a dark room and stepping on a toy. 
That's a breathtaking moment as well. Um, others of you remember, um, um, you know, unexpectedly biting into a habanero pepper in the middle of an otherwise unremarkable meal, and that was a, a breathtaking moment. I remember uh, a time about nine years ago or so, uh, I was in Charlotte, North Carolina with our family. We were with Life Action Ministries doing a, a summit, and my uh, phone rang, and it was my mother on the other end of the line about nine o'clock in the morning. She had woken up that morning and found that my father had passed away unexpectedly. It's a breathtaking moment. And so what we're about to see is something that is in the category of absolutely awful. And if I do my job right, you do your job right, there should be a breathtaking gasp when I read Ephesians chapter two, verse one. Let's read it together. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. All right, either I didn't do my job correctly or you didn't do your job correctly. Let me read that again. Here it is. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. That ought to take your breath away. It continues in verse two, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath. <sighs> like the rest of mankind. We're gonna stop there. We're just gonna go through the first three verses of chapter two tonight. I'm gonna give you a little warning here. This message will not resolve. We will leave feeling awful if I do my job right and you do your job right. Today we're gonna to examine the absolutely breathtaking reality that our sin is awful in the eyes of God, and it ought to take our breath away. We're gonna answer three questions. Here are the three questions. What is sin? Number two, what tempts me to sin? What's so enticing about it? And then number three, what does sin do? Are you ready to jump into it? We need some answers to those questions, okay? So first of all, what is sin? And we've already kind of said this, but sin is awful, and we spelled it that way because it, we're looking for a deeper awe around the reality of sin. Now, remember the context of what's happening here. This is a real church and a real place, the city of Ephesus, and a real person, Paul, is writing back to a group of people who once did not have faith in Jesus Christ, and now they have faith in Jesus Christ. Their sin has been forgiven. Their pardon has been secured. He's reminded them in the first chapter of what their true identity is, chosen forever, child of God, sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, guaranteeing their inheritance forever. He's reminded them of their identity, but do you see what he does in the first verse of chapter two? He reminds them what they once were. They were dead in trespasses and sins. He never wants them to get over the depth, the breathtaking depth of sin. 
and the depths of sin from which they have been delivered. If you're here tonight and you are a Christian, your sin has been forgiven, you have looked to Jesus Christ and placed your faith in him for the forgiveness of sin, you've repented of sin, you still need to be reminded of how awful sin is. You should never forget the breathtaking awfulness of sin. He wants us to know sin is awfully bad and sin is awfully deep still on the inside of the human heart. Now, the human heart wants to convince itself that we are basically good and when it comes to sin, of course, nobody's going to think or admit that they're perfect. They will say things like, well, nobody's perfect, but you still might believe that you are basically good with a few flawed areas and if you work hard enough and get on your best behavior, you can kind of fill in the gaps. What the Bible wants us to know and never forget that the human heart is totally depraved, it is morally corrupt, it is poisoned by the depths and the awfulness of sin. If you are not a Christian, you're a pre-Christian because we're gonna believe the best about you. We're gonna believe that before this service is over with, you're gonna be one of those Christians. If you're not a Christian, let me tell you why you're not yet a Christian. It's because you have not yet convinced yourself of how awful your sin is. You're probably living under the illusion that you are good enough or you can be good enough or you can work your way into favor with God and you don't understand how awful sin is to God. We have to be convinced that sin is not just a surface issue. Sin is something that is at the very depths of who I am. And until your breath is taken away with how awful your sin is, you will continue to try to save yourself and you'll never reach out for a savior like Jesus Christ, who is the only one who can redeem that sin. We tend to minimize the sin that we commit, but here's the thing, if right now you're even kind of resisting the topic of sin that we're gonna be talking about sin right now, you don't resist talking about the sin that others commit against you, do you? We minimize the sin that we commit toward others and toward God, and we maximize the sin that others commit toward us. And so we're real good at talking about how awful somebody else's sin is. We maximize that. But we need to maximize our own sin. As a pastor, reading those prayer requests every week, a pastor sitting in counseling sessions, a pastor hearing about the broken families and the broken lives and the heartaches of children growing up in broken homes and all of the abuse and all of the awfulness that is our culture, it's real hard for me to grasp the depths of the sin around me. What I need to become better at is to understand I am actually part of the problem because there is still indwelling sin in me. What's wrong with the world? A lot of people have been asking that this week. What's wrong with the world? The answer to that question is this, sin. It's awful, and it's contaminating everything. 
And it's not just a surface issue. Every sinful act is simply the overflow of a sinful heart. A couple of years ago, I was in Milwaukee, and uh, again, we were doing a family life marriage conference there, and I'd driven my car there, and I'd parked it in downtown Milwaukee in what I thought was a place where you could pay, and apparently it was like a 24-hour thing, and I got there like at the 25th hour, and I already had a parking ticket on the car was not real happy about that, but I didn't feel a whole lot of guilt about that. I didn't feel like it was really all that awful, but the reality was, is I was guilty of a crime. The problem with so many of us is we treat sin like it's a parking ticket, that it's a minor violation, and in reality, it's so awful that even one sin will keep you out of heaven forever. That is how awful sin is. It's deadly, according to verse one. You were dead in trespasses and sin. So what is sin? Sin is awful. Here's the next thing. Sin is crossing the line. Let's give it some more definition here. Do you see what he says here? That you were dead in trespasses. If you have the NIV, it says transgressions there. It simply means a line that has been crossed. It means leaving the path and wandering into territory that doesn't belong to you. Or maybe a more modern day uh, interpretation would be you're driving on a road and you get off the wrong road, you're headed in the wrong direction. Let me just try this out. How many of you men have ever been lost while driving a car? I am shocked that you were honest enough to admit that in church because that's never once happened with your wife, has it? You've never admitted that. And you know, you've got your wife there telling you, I think if you take this road back over here and why don't you check, why don't you, you know. And it's real hard for us to admit that we've gotten off the road. So men, to properly understand sin, all you have to do is when you have gotten off the road that you're supposed to be on and you're on a road where you do not belong, all you have to do is turn to your wife and say, I have sinned (laughs) because that's what sin is. You've gotten off the path and you've wandered into territory that doesn't belong to you. You've crossed a line like a no trespassing sign. God has held up for us boundaries where it is unacceptable for you to cross the line. And probably the most famous of those no trespassing signs is found in Exodus chapter 20, and he gives us 10 of them. Maybe you've heard of them. They're called the 10, the 10 commandments, right? And so when God draws a line and says, you will not worship any other God before me. He draws a line, and what he's saying is this. On this side of the line is acceptable worship. On that side of the line is idolatry. But do you know what every one of us has done? We have crossed the line into territory not belonging us, from genuine worship to misdirected worship into idolatry, and we're all guilty. When God says, don't murder, what he's saying is, on this side of the line is love, and on this side of the line is hate. We've all crossed that line. When God says, don't, uh, when God says, honor your mother and your father, what he's saying is, on this side of the line, there's respect for God-ordained authority. 
But when we cross the line, we make ourselves our own authority, we rebel against authority, and we create anarchy in the culture. On this side of the line, God says, don't steal. Work hard. On this side of the line is, no, cheat, get your way ahead by somebody else's hard work. And so we've all crossed that line. It's all these trespasses. And the the final one, if you're able to somehow think you make it through the first nine, you finally get to the last one, and he says, don't covet. On this side of the line is gratefulness and contentment. On the other side of the line is materialism and an entitlement mentality and debt because we want to grab things that we can't pay for. And so all of us have crossed this trespass, this this transgression, these trespasses, and all of us have sinned. They're God's legal boundaries, and it should bring a breathtaking awareness of where we are when God shows us that sin. Romans chapter 7, verse, verse 7 says this, I would not have known sin if it... Uh, was not for the law. I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. And so there's a line that's called the law that God has, pro- has passed down from a lawgiver to people. There are laws, there are boundary lines. And God says no trespassing. And when he does that, he's trying to say, I'm trying to keep you from hurting yourself. And if you choose to cross the line and you see things start to disintegrate in your family and in your heart and in your character and your integrity, what God is saying, you choose to cross the line, you, you get the consequences. Choose to sin, choose to suffer. God wants us on the right side of the line. Sin is crossing the line. Not only that, sin is missing the mark. You see the next word there? And you were dead in trespasses and sins. It's plural. It's talking about activity, things that we do, sins of commission, but also sins of omission, things that we've left undone. A lot of us think, um, you know, I, I, haven't, I haven't done a whole lot of bad stuff in my life. Yeah, but think about the good stuff you've left undone. James chapter four, verse 17 says, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it to him It is sin. It means missing the mark. In Bible times, the most effective weapon that anyone would have would be a bow and an arrow. And so for target practice, they would put a bullseye up with concentric circles. You've seen a bullseye. And the archer would take target practice. And if he hit the bullseye, everybody would cheer for joy. If he didn't hit the bullseye, if he was off, do you know what he would say? He would say, I have sinned. I missed the mark. Now, the problem of the human heart is this. Even as I give that analogy, you're probably agreeing. It's like, yeah, I've missed the mark by a couple of inches. And we have this picture of ourselves working really hard to hit the bullseye. The reality is, we're not even aiming in the right direction. We're, we have flaming arrows and we're trying to burn down the world. That's, 
the problem of the human heart. So it's crossing a line, it's missing the mark. But I want you to understand something. That's not our biggest problem. My biggest problem is not that I have missed the mark. My biggest problem is not that I have crossed the line. My biggest problem is that I despise the mark and I hate the line. My biggest problem is not that I'm a law breaker. My biggest problem is I'm a law hater. My biggest problem is not that I have committed sins. My biggest problem is that in my heart there is indwelling sin. It's not what I do, it's at the core of who I am. Sin is my nature. Psalm 51 verse five says this, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. From my very first breath, in my heart, there was sin contaminating everything I do. I am not a sinner because I commit sins. I commit sins because I am a sinner. What is sin? Sin is awful. Sin is crossing the line. Sin is missing the mark. Here's the next question. What tempts us to sin? Why, if, if sin is so awful, why is, why am I so attracted to it? Well, this verse tells us in verse two. It says, in which you once walked following, first of all, the course of this world. He's about to introduce us to a triple tyranny. There are three slave masters, there are three wardens, three prison guards that keep us in bondage to sin. The first one he mentions here is the course of this world. I've got a friend who's 75 years old and what he does for fun is he runs marathons. And uh, I work out with him three days a week and he runs around me in the gym the whole time. Makes me feel really crummy. He likes to run the course that's set before him. As long as he stays on the course, he almost always wins. And so for you and I to understand that there is a course that's been marked out for us by this world. When we talk about the world, we're not talking about planet Earth. We're talking about a world view a system of thinking, a belief system, a pattern that you hear and fold into in peer groups, you sing along with in pop music lyrics, you watch in movie scripts, you hear in media outlets, you study in philosophy classes, and you vote for in political platforms, and you engage in social media, and worst of all, you're addicted to Netflix. So all the world views are coming through these channels to us and if you are not guarding your heart, you are following the course of a sinful worldview, and it makes you dead to God. And so we need to understand that we've got a, an enemy here, the course of this world makes sin seem normal and it makes righteousness seem weird. 
And so if you're a person that is pursuing righteousness, you're going to be weird in this world. You've gotten off the course of the world. You'll be mocked, you'll be marginalized, you'll be made to feel like you are a minority. If you can't handle that, you probably won't get off the course of this world. You'll be perfectly fine with counting sin as normal and righteousness as something weird. And so we've got to understand the only sin that this world still even considers sin is what? It's calling something sin. And so we're living in a world where if you say, hey, that's sin, the world will call that hate speech because you're not allowing somebody to sin and follow the course that the world is on. And so we have this temptation by the world. Secondly, we have something called the prince and the power of the air. Notice it here in verse two. He says following, there's a second thing we're following. We're following the prince and the power of the air the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Sounds kind of spooky, doesn't it? What's this air and what's this spirit? It's, it's not too mystical, it's just the invisible world. We, we believe in God, if God's invisible, there is an opposing force to God. His name is Satan and he has some measure of authority. He has some power, he does not have all power and his realm is everything from the earth to the heavens, the space in between, we call it the air. And so he is the prince of the power of the air. Notice that is at work. There is something working to get you addicted to sin. It's a spiritual power. And it's at work in what he calls the sons of disobedience. And again, another definition of sin is, is disobedience. We know that evil existed before the Garden of Eden. Evil existed before Adam and Eve were created because Lucifer, a created angelic being, swelled up with pride in his heart in the throne room of God, and he said, I want to make myself like the Most High. We read that in Isaiah chapter 40. And then of course God kicked him out of heaven and kicked him onto the surface of the earth. If I were God, I would have chosen another planet, but that, I'm not God, that's not an announcement. So here we are occupying the same space as Lucifer, now Satan, who is still doing today the same thing that he was doing on the day that he was kicked out of heaven. He's leading a rebellion against God and he wants to take you and your family with him. And it's working against you. And do you know how he entices you? He entices you with the same temptation he had. He wanted to be like the Most High. He wanted to be equal to or greater than God. And do you know what the core of sin is? The core of sin is a declaration of independence from God to say, God, I don't need you. I don't need your boundaries. I will make my own boundaries and I will be like God. And not only are you declaring independence from God, you are declaring war on God, the rightful authority and ruler of the universe. So sin is declaring independence from God. 
In 1 John chapter 3, verse eight, the scripture says, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. How would you like to be called of the devil? You make a practice of sinning, then it would be an indication that you have not gotten off the course of this world, you're still following the prince and the power of the air. You're a son of disobedience and you need to repent of sin. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning, it says in 1 John 3, verse eight. If you're a parent, you see this sin sickness in your children every time, even as six months 12-month, 18-month-olds, you, you try to draw a line and you create a boundary as a parent and you say no. And what do they do? They follow the prince and the power of the air that is at work in the sons of disobedience and they don't like boundaries. And they grow up and they become like you and me and we don't like boundaries either. We want to be our own God. That is at the depth of who we are. And if you don't confront it, by the way, as a parent of a young child, you're gonna be dealing with a 15-year-old or a 16-year-old that doesn't like boundaries that much either. So, we're tempted by the course of this world, we're tempted by the prince and the power of the air. There's one other thing, and it's found here in verse, at the, uh, in verse three among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature the children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And so here's the third temptation. It's the passion of the flesh. And it's almost as if we want to say, you know, if it wasn't for this world, I wouldn't sin. If it wasn't for that mean old devil tempting me all the time, I wouldn't sin. Wait a minute. The biggest problem you've got is you. You like it. You've got appetites and desires that are drawn like a magnet to the passions of what is called the flesh. The flesh is an interesting word in scripture. We can think about skin. That's, that's probably the container of our flesh, but it goes much deeper to our very core, our nature, our appetites, our wants, our desires it talks about. Romans chapter eight, verse seven says, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. You make yourself an enemy of God if your mind is set on, sunk down deep into controlled by the flesh. For it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. It is incapable of, of submitting to the law of God. That's how bent my flesh is toward sin. The, the cravings of my flesh actually turn good things into God things. Think about it. What, what do you crave? If, if you're honest, you would say, well, I've got a craving for food. How many of you right now could use a cheeseburger? Um, Krispy Kreme donut, anybody? It's like, yeah, that, that's, a, that's a glorious craving, right? But you can turn even food into, into an object of worship that actually controls you. What you crave ends up consuming you. So 
The desire for food is not sin. The desire for love is not sin. Anybody here wanna be loved? Anybody here wanna be loved by your husband, your wife, your children, your mom, your dad? Yeah, the desire for love is not sin. But you can turn the desire, the craving for love into an addiction to a relationship so that you begin to worship the object of the one you love and it becomes sin. We have desires for rest, we have desires for sex. Those things can be turned into God things, laziness, or addiction to pornography, or materialism, or self-indulgent attention. All of these things that our body craves, our body and our mind, can turn into things that are sinful things. People that misunderstand what it means to be a Christian think that somehow God is trying to keep good things from us. No, he's not. He's trying to keep good things from becoming God things in our lives. I saw a tweet this week from John Piper. He said it this way. God is not a killjoy. He just opposes what kills joy. All of these things can be, bring great joy, food and love and rest, and, and they can all kill you if they become sin in our lives. Here's the last question. What does sin do? Here's the first thing, very simply. Sin kills. Sin is deadly. And it ought to take your breath away to know the damage and the deadliness that sin is. This means in verse one, when he says you were dead, what, what does that mean? It means not only that sin renders you totally depraved, it also renders you totally incapable of responding to God. A dead person can't do anything about being dead. And so to understand what God has done to bring us from death to life in regeneration is a breathtaking reality in the scripture. We need to understand the penalty for sin is death. Romans chapter six, verse 23, very famous verse. The wages of sin is death. Do you get a paycheck? Do you have some wages? You work all week, at the end of the week, you get some wages. Here's the reality. The wages of your working sinful heart produces death. It kills, it destroys. It doesn't just make you sick, it makes you dead. Totally incapable of responding to God. Sin literally will take your breath away. Really, forever. That's how deadly sin is. We think about death, most often we think about physical death and we would describe that as the separation of the body from the soul. We would think about it that way. But the spiritual understanding of death is this. It is the separation of the soul from God. It is being forever separated from the life-giving source that is God. And scripture warns us 
of the fear and the horror of being isolated forever from God. Sin kills your capacity to know God. If that doesn't take your breath away, maybe this will. Sin invites God's wrath. Again, we see it there in verse three. We were by nature children of wrath. Now, if you turn on the television and listen to some smiley face preacher, he will probably not tell you the reality of the wrath of God. It's not a popular subject. I do not understand how preachers in good conscience can know about the wrath of God written in scripture and not warn people that not only does sin kill, sin invites the wrath of God. God is not indifferent toward our sin. God's not complacent toward sin. For him to overlook sin, for him not to pour out wrath on sin would be to deny his very nature because his nature is the opposite of sin. It is righteousness and holiness. Understand this, God sees sin. God hates sin. God is angered by sin. God judges sin. God reproves sin and God punishes sin. The wrath of God is meant to remind us of the severity of our sin. It should take our breath away. To pause and to think about the price tag and the anger of God, the wrath that is poured out on sin. The book of Revelation gives us a preview of what it will be like when God pours out his wrath on unrepentant sinners. The scripture says in Revelation chapter one, all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. They will call out to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. When you think about a lamb, do you think about wrath? The lamb of God has a gentle, forgiving, loving approach to those who repent of sin, but the Lamb of God has a wrath toward those who refuse to repent of sin. For the great day of wrath has come, it says, and who can stand? Revelation chapter 19, those who do not know Jesus as Savior will know him as their judge as he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. Understand this, all sin, each and every sin will be punished. Either on the cross in Christ or in hell eternally separated from the life-giving source who is God. It's the gospel that points us to the cross. Those of us who have repented of sin and put faith in Jesus Christ, when we look at the cross, it takes our breath away because it's in that moment when I see the torture and I see the blood and I see the brutality 
of how Jesus was treated, I understand that was the wrath of God being poured out on Jesus in my place. That's the gospel, it's the good news that the Lamb of God has taken away the sin of all those who will repent and believe the gospel. If you want to escape the wrath of God, you must turn from your sin, turn from following the course of this world, turn from following the prince and the power of the air, turn from the passions and the desires of your flesh and follow Christ. It's the only way to escape the wrath of God. And if you want, you can escape the wrath of God right here, right now. What does sin do? Sin kills, sin invites the wrath of God, and finally sin infects everybody. Do you understand there are not good people and bad people? Do you understand there's not sinners and non-sinners? Everybody has sinned. Everybody deserves the wrath of God. The question is this, what will you do when you are made aware of your sin. Everybody feels guilt over sin. Everybody feels shame. Everybody has regret over sin. But there are basically two options when it comes to sin. You can either excuse, justify, defend, rationalize, hide, and blame somebody else for your sin. That's one course of action. You can minimize it. Or the other course of action is this. You can agree with God that it's awfully bad and it's awfully deep, resulting in acknowledging your need for an external righteousness to be granted to you in the person of Jesus Christ. Do you understand? Back up in verse one. It says, you were dead. There's hope. Do you understand that in this room right now, there's only two types of people, okay? There are people in this room who were dead in their sins, and there are people in this room who are dead in their sins. If tonight, you sense that you are dead, do you know what that is? That is God calling you off the course of this world, out of the prince and the power of the air, out of the passions and cravings of your flesh, and get on a new road and granting you, wanting to grant to you a life-giving fresh start and new beginning in Christ. Can I ask you, are you dead or were you dead? There's only two types. If you are dead and would like to change the status and become a part of the people who were dead but have now been made alive in Jesus Christ, you can respond right now to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Let me ask you to bow your heads.
And if right now you're feeling the weight and the guilt, as we talked about the wrath of the Lamb of God, if maybe for the first time tonight you're beginning to see the depth of your sin, the reality of the wrath of God toward all those who refuse to repent, if tonight you want a new life in Christ, if you want to be made alive in Christ, if you want sin forgiven, if you want to turn from sin and follow Jesus Christ, why don't you just open your heart to him right now and tell him that, just from your heart to his. You might say, I've gone too long minimizing my sin. Somehow I've thought I can be good enough. I can try harder. Maybe you've even hidden your sin. God sees it. Why don't you just tell him Maybe even by name, let him know where you've crossed the line, where you've missed the mark. And if tonight you walked into this place dead in trespasses and sin, why don't you ask him for new life in Jesus Christ? Ask him to forgive that sin. Thank him for the cross. Thank him for being the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Commit your life to him. Now for the majority of you, you've heard this message. You've heard about sin. But if you're not careful, over the years of becoming familiar with it, knowing about it, even knowing how to be forgiven of it, if you're not careful, you'll lose the ability to have your breath taken away with the awfulness of sin. You'll begin to manage sin, begin to minimize sin, cover sin, excuse sin, blame somebody else for your sin. Why don't you tonight, Christian, begin to feel the weight of how grieved God is by sin. Why don't you get on the other side of that line Repent and obey. Is it something you've left undone? Have you failed to honor mom and dad? Have you failed to tell the truth in every circumstance? Have you failed to live a morally pure life? Why don't you get back on the other side of that line? Mike is going to lead us in a song. We're going to stand and sing. At the end of this service, if you want to come and acknowledge that tonight, you need a savior from sin. Our pastors are gonna be here. One of our pastors just come right now. We're always here to pray with you and maybe tonight you're feeling the weight, the awfulness of sin. You don't know where to go, what to do. That's why 
We have our pastors here and we'd love to pray for you and, and help you any way we can. Why don't I pray right now and we're gonna stand and sing. Father, tonight I pray that you would not let us breathe under the weight of how awful our sin is. God, there's a part of us that wants to rejoice. We wanna go to the next verse. We wanna, we wanna celebrate the grace that is available and yet tonight, God, we don't wanna rush past how deep, how personal disobedience is to you. It grieves your heart, angers you. Tonight, all of us come with a need for forgiveness of sin. And God, I pray the pattern of our life would be marked by a humility that deals deeply with sin. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Why don't we stand and sing?